This is why I like product. I got in product because I like helping people. I like building things that people like to use and seeing that impact their day-to-day life. Because a lot of these folks are stuck in crap jobs using crappy software that some IT person shoved down their throat. It's like, no, I want to give them something they actually like so they don't hate their life. But also the engineers, when you see that, it's like, this is great. I mean, this is the point. If we can't even understand our own systems, how are we possibly going to be able to have these conversations? Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. Anywhere Amazon has a lead, I would never pick somebody just to come and eat their lunch. That said, the engineering part of me loves parts of Google Cloud. The architect, business owner, responsible for making money side of me has conflicted views with with Google Cloud, I guess is the way I put it. I think they've improved there. Um, It's interesting. You can almost see the trade-offs real time of the part of the engineering technology part of it that I love kind of trading off with the business part. And they're trying to kind of figure out where their calibration is. It's almost like this thing that um, people complain about Google, right? Like the engineering is like it's from the moon, but also like the sales process and the kind of actual connecting to business value also looks like it comes from the moon. Yeah. And I think to a lot of business outsiders, right, that's the obvious statement. I think one thing that's lost and I didn't hit it really until I left consulting, because when I started at Workiva, they were on Google App Engine from beta. And what I learned there and what we learned there is you, you had to buy into their vision And if you bought into their vision, holy crap, it's amazing. And that vision actually was ahead of its time. So this is the pre-Kubernetes days, right? Like Google App Engine was uh, like roughly at the same time as EC2 before, uh, you know, container engines, lambdas. Yep. Yeah. And we were actually using both Amazon and Google App Engine. So we're using EC2 for like our very high compute. And then, but 90% of our work went through GAE, which was actually a pretty good pairing. Ah, so you're the legendary uh, multi-cloud user. Yeah, the good version of multi-cloud. Uh, <laughs> not the uh, lowest common denominator version of multi-cloud that I can't really stand. Yeah, to me, it's like take advantage of the best systems or the best parts of the systems. The interesting thing is our time on Google App Engine actually led to us working quite a bit with Google on what became Kubernetes and voicing a lot of our input. And So it was an interesting time. Got to work closely with a lot of those folks kind of being like one of their early adopter customers. But So that, that was a learning experience too, but... Yeah, I think the interesting thing about if you really bought into the Google mindset, it set you up for the big technical challenges you would hit as you grew your company. Like you were just already there. Like you were so constrained by the environment. Right, exactly. Right. Like it'll scale you to the moon, but it also kind of has a cost to get onto it in the first place. Yep. And that we definitely took that engineering, like just especially at that time, so few engineers had time with like non-relational databases. Right. The, the amount of time we spent just getting people to learn data store and eventual consistency. I mean, I can, I've presented eventual consistency to so many people at this point, like I can do it in my sleep. Like even literally leadership of like, why can't we do this thing that we've been able to do in technology for 20 years in school? It's well, so that's the thing. Like, yes, you can scale to the moon, but you also have to build the rocket that's shaped exactly like to spec. Like there's not a lot of flexibility there. Yeah. And the, and the interesting thing is those constraints allowed us to like really build some pretty powerful stuff. Like I, I think constraints can be good. Yeah. It certainly helped me understand what eventually become observability just because, I mean, GAE was the definition of a black box. Mm-hmm. All we had was logs. So we had to get really creative to understand what was going on behind the scenes. And that that was kind of back to the struggles with Google 
that was part of it is they they didn't truly dog food right like i mean nobody yeah. like amazon doesn't truly dog food but they certainly dog food more than google did and they just were kind of oblivious to our struggles they're mm-hmm. like we we don't know we have nothing here we, we need help it was just some corp internal it applications right like nothing user facing nothing nothing hyperscale yeah and so we i mean we got creative to figure this out but it, it also it allowed us like to just be really smart. Like we had less than 10 people at ops when we went public as a company. Mm-hmm. Our R and D unit was focused on the business. Like we weren't thinking about infrastructure, any of that. Which is super powerful, right? Like if you have Google's SREs being your kind of ops team and scaling team, it takes a lot of load off of your business. And, and, yeah. And so much of what we were doing was learning how to interact and same with them, by the way. I mean, I definitely have a lot of stories of some painful interactions. Um, Oh yeah, they have no. Every SRE at Google has a sticker that says "We are uh, Snapchat SRE." <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I remember going to conferences with the Snapchat folks and watching them sitting, just like us, sitting in the hallways trying to get their app to stay up. Yeah, so now would be a good time for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Bo Lidden. I am a engineering manager at Workday. Uh, I've done a lot previously, from consulting, being in leadership, to just being an engineer, and just love to solve hard problems mostly. I feel like there's there's a sharpening up of the abstraction layer that needs to be happening between like I feel like this is the thing that serverless has done really well is they've made it very easy for you to reason about what's yours and what's mine right and I feel like the Amazons of the world they they're clear on their boundaries like the abstraction level is clear but it's also like very bumpy and uneven and it's not always where you would expect it to be like sometimes it's like right up in your face and sometimes it's like down racking servers right and I feel like this is what I hope and expect over the next, you know, 10 years of technology is that, so I was a systems generalist, right? I started up doing mail and DNS and file systems and operating systems and like literally everything. But like, I don't wreck servers anymore. Like it's been so long since I've gone to a colo, I've forgotten how to flip a power button, right? I don't like it that way. You had to sell me on it for, at first. Like I was not stoked about it, but now I'm like, yay. Like those brain cells could be recycled, <laughs> right? And I feel like this level of, you know, a threshold of what can be recycled is creeping up the stack. And there's this like uncanny valley there for a while where we call it outsourcing because it's really obvious and hard to us. And that gives outsourcing a bad name. But as soon as it's done well, it's no longer outsourced. It's just something we don't think about anymore because somebody else does it better than we do. Right, exactly. It's this kind of build versus buy thing that people struggle with. And, you know, we see that with kind of cloud ops. We see this with observability. They angst about it. They don't actually struggle with it. They angst about it while it's in that uncanny valley of being so close yet so far away. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I mean, so the thing that's maybe a little bit unique about me is I've always been a product person. Like I, what little bit of nerd fame I have on Twitter comes from like some ops stuff I've done, mostly because Charity promoted some of the talks I did. But uh, <laughs> I've never actually worked on ops. Although I, once I am also old enough that like when I wanted to build a website, I had to go stand up servers. The first job I had was enterprise IT. I had to work with the IT group, installing the servers, racking them and putting the OS on them. But to kind of double down on your story there, we, my old business partners at Real Kinetic, Robert, when we were still at Workiva, he was presenting at a conference. He goes, everybody here who's racked a server, raise your hand. This was to 400 engineers. And I think three hands went up. Whoa. That's a sea change. And Workiva was unique, right? Because they were on Google App Engine from day one. So they didn't have that need. The interesting thing, the reason we even asked that question is because we were feeling constrained by Google App Engine. We were looking at leveraging more of these AWS services in like engineers coming. It was so weird. Because they were coming from this world of constraint till all of a sudden they, they're like logging in Amazon. They're like, oh my God, it's so much. I want to do it all. I want to play with it all. Right. And it's kind of like going back to my old days of being on the Microsoft when they'd send you the MSDN stack of CDs. 
<laughs> you'd be like, oh, cool, I'm going to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you could pick anything from this range of like 100 different tools. But which one is actually the right one for me? I don't know. Probably none of them. But from a sales perspective, brilliant, because this engineer goes like, oh, shit, I'll install this thing. And next thing you know, you're trying to convince them to buy it. <laughs> yeah. And it, I think this is why Amazon wins the business side, because they're like, we're going to give you all of that. Yeah. We're going to let the engineers like use their own damn credit card to pay for it to get started. You're not going to have to make any hard choices up front. <laughs> you'll pay for them down the line. Google's like, you have to completely change your mindset to even be able to use this, mm. which is one of their struggles is you you have to kind of understand their software and their systems to really get the advantage of it. And by the way, Amazon has the same problem if you actually want to save money. Yes. Like that's one of the, when we were consulting, that was Amazon's biggest thing is they're like, we need you to help us because so many people think using the cloud is just taking their same architecture and just putting it on EC2 systems. And then they're mad that it costs twice as much. It's like, well, it's because you're not getting any advantage of being on the system. And also the reliability is not necessarily there because, you know, if you are counting on your servers staying powered on for years, that's not going to work because that's not how modern data centers work. Yep. We had to hire ops people now because we needed all the same stuff. Like it was their job was a little easier, but we still needed them which is why ops people always liked Amazon because they're like, ooh, I get to still do most of what I normally do. It's just instead of me having to rack and stack, I can actually just click a button and get my server and then I can still go configure it the same way I want to. Mm. Where Google's like, no, you don't get to do any of that mm. at the Google App Engine time. Obviously, Google added more just because they were trying to compete with, with Amazon and they did need some of that flexibility. It was constraining. Yeah. So which approach do you think is going to succeed? Like, How do we wind up with these kind of two different paths of the Google kind of build it exactly our way because it works at Google scale and the Amazon like, you know, you can mostly run your your previous architecture, but it's going to cost you. Like, how do we wind up with somewhere happy? I mean, I think I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Simon Wardley, who does kind of the mapping and showing like how things become. Like, mm, yeah, I just spoke at MapCamp 2020. It was super fun. Like, geeking out about map with other Wardley mappers is super fun. Right. And I think this gets back to Charity's point is each of those layers eventually becomes the standard of the market, the, the baseline, right? Like, right. the same way Kubernetes is basically becoming that, right? They are the, the market share owner. And then that becomes an abstraction that nobody will care about again. Right. At some point, nobody's going to give a shit about Kubernetes. Right. But we had to for a while, just like we had to care about Linux for a while. And we're going to keep moving up these stacks. There will still be people who go back and do that, but there will be like, I always use beer as my example, right? There's the Budweiser and there's the microbreweries. There's a world where both exist. And like eventually Kubernetes will be like the Bud Light where it's like, I can go get it. But there will still be space for the craft brewers who want to go do their custom stuff. And that's how I think about software. That's how we thought about it at Workiva. We're like 80% of our crap can be on App Engine. But we do have some high compute stuff where we need to go get that muscle. So we're going to go do it. But I wouldn't want to run my entire infrastructure on that either. Right. Right. And that, that to me is the beauty is I want the flexibility. This is why I was saying earlier, I don't like the, the boring multi-cloud where it's like, we're going to try to standardize across all these providers so you can just hop around because you, you're giving all that up. You're basically saying, no, we just get the parts these guys all agree on. Yeah. Which to be fair is basically what I'm back to what I was saying earlier. It's the part that everybody's already standardized on. It's the Kubernetes that everybody's already standardized on. Great. Yeah. Okay. You're now using the same stuff everybody else is. You're not even taking advantage of the stuff that Amazon, Google, and Microsoft have determined to be the differentiators that they're investing. There's a cost to diversity. And if you're investing in that cost, you want to reap the benefits of it. I, I feel like, like this is the thing that we're kind of struggling with a little bit with observability, which is the, you know, how much do we force people to learn up front and understand up front? And ideally, they wouldn't have to learn and understand anything. But in fact, we want to change the way people do things because it's better for them. Which means that we have to be opinionated, right? Like we have to say that this is the way to do it. What I think has pleasantly surprised me over the past few years is how far the market has moved to meet us. Because when we started talking about this, when I was flying around the world, just like constantly, just like giving this talk over and over, like I was met with these 
with these blank stares, just like, you know, and so many people were like, it's a solved problem. Datadog's going public. There's nothing left to be done in the space. Like, what are you even doing here? You know? And I feel like it's gotten easier for us, not because we've changed what we've been talking about so much as a lot of other people are now echoing it. Now they've started thinking about wide events and they've started noticing like the shortcomings of metrics and they've started thinking about instrumentation more. But I also, I don't want to turn into the boundary of our time, you know, who's just like, oh, they were so great. They were so ahead of their time. Sure miss them, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've told this story on previous LA casts, but like, you know, being startups run in my blood. My uncle founded the first uh, photo sharing and printing startup <laughs> in the year 1998 or 1999. They were ahead of their time. They went under. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book now about, uh, it's called Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's about the music scene in New York in the late 90s, early 2000s. They talk about how the Strokes were like the first band that like, came in as kind of like they broke up new metal and, and boy bands, but they weren't the ones who made all the money. It was Kings of Leon and the killers or whatever. It's always the people who are like, Ooh, they found something. Right. I'm going to go like do that better or scale it or whatever. Look at the fucking market right now. They're just like, there's so many database companies, monitoring companies, logging companies, APM companies. And they're all just like, we do observability too. And that, that's what keeps me up at night is that, you know, we will have blazed the trail, but then we won't be the ones to find out the easy way to do it. Or, you know, we won't be able to leverage our market size or our capital or like we've got our, what, 10 developers, you know, like, and they've got their hundreds. I'm just like, ah. Well, and the funny thing is, I, I think going back to Google, I think they did this with Google App Engine. It was the first version of serverless. I've said, I've been working on serverless since, mm. you know, 2011, 2010. And it's like, but they just didn't win the market because of other reasons. It had nothing to do with the technology. It was other reasons. Amazon's like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you need a catchy name yeah. to get people to argue about it and like be pissed off about it. <laughs> I mean, in Google's case, I think there were legit reasons. I just don't think they could empathize with the enterprise customer. And I don't think they realized how much of the market was actually going to be. Mm. This is what Microsoft figured out, right? They're like, all right, Amazon is already eating into the startup world. Right, exactly. The money is migrating enterprise customers. The money is not betting on there being 10 or 100 Snapchats. Like there are not going to be 10 or 100 Snapchats. Yep. And e even then, that's all luck. You're At that point, you're an investor. You're like, well, I hope Snapchat's the one who makes it because we, we need them to be the one that makes it. Yeah. And that that's... I think some of it was just, it wasn't Google's culture to go meet them in the middle. Google's culture was like, we're out here, you come to us. And like I said, that appealed to me as an engineer who's like, I'm aggressive. <laughs> like, I, yes, take me there. Yeah. But for a lot of people, they're no. Yeah. And, and I guess to Charlie's point, right? Like, you know, how do we make sure that observability is not the, you know, we're here, come to us. And instead, we're meeting people halfway. I, I'm really curious on your thoughts there, Bo. I think the future of all of this, both serverless and observability start to come together because I think this stuff will eat its way beyond the engineering staff and into the rest of the business. This is the biggest thing is once people realize like everybody's becoming a tech company, everything's going through your technology and your bits. Yeah. So that the same data that business analysts were like looking at manually collecting, they need that from your systems. They need it just as much as the engineers do. Yeah. And this is always, this is why I say like Amazon eats everybody's lunch. They can tell you the cost of everything. Yeah. Right. And so to me, it's like, well, that data has got to come from the same data, like the observability. So there's a way where you can even see this becoming, I've always wanted to do this. Like this data is the foundation of it's the data businesses have always wanted. They've always wanted the ability to measure and have all of this. Now they get it because almost everything they're doing is digital. Yeah. It's just there. It's just, nobody's providing it. So if I'm almost going to what you're saying. What you're saying is that we've kind of siloed operational data as a separate category when instead this is something that, you know, CFOs, that CEOs should be caring about just as much as CIOs and should be using the same data sources. 
Well, and that's the presentation that uh, Charity would tweet of mine. I basically talk about that because that was my job is I would have to go take that data and then go talk to everybody else in the org, investors, everybody be like, this is the data I'm basing my decisions on. I can literally present it to you and show you this is real stuff. I'm showing you the costs. Once again, back to the Google App Engine, most of our time was spent tracing down costs because it would just scale. Yeah. So like we had a customer when they clicked a button, it cost us $15,000 every time they clicked that button. <laughs> and we're like, oh God, okay, what what are they doing? <laughs> Yep, that is why, you know, all of these companies, like I think it was Cloud Zero, right? Like all of these dev FinOps companies are going to do really, really great. So the talk that Bo is talking about is the one called What is Happening? Attempting to Understand Our Systems. And I love it. It just starts with this cold open, like, we have no idea what's going on in our systems. Like, we have no fucking clue. And nobody does. And we're starting to be held to account for this by society, by, you know, the government. And like, we can't really even defend ourselves until we start to understand ourselves. And then it goes into a lot of like great best practices. It's very ranty. It's very funny. You should all look at it. We should put a link to it in the show notes. I, I was present. I, I, I slam uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook right at the beginning. <laughs> it's like, it's oh, I was ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> Way to my heart. <laughs> that, that was kind of my point of it is like, Companies forever have wanted to be able to do this. This is why they want us tracking how much time we spend on X. This is why they've all these annoying things we never want to do. They've always wanted it to make real decisions. Like once you've been in leadership, you understand why they wanted it. When you're not in leadership, you're like, oh my God, they don't trust me or whatever. You think of all the worst reasons they're asking when really it's just like, I just want to be able to make intelligent decisions about what we do next. Yeah, this is why I'm so so excited about service level objectives, right? Like this kind of concept from SRE is not just like a Google thing, right? Like it's an actual thing that people are adopting because it enables them to couple business outcomes to how do I actually concretely measure it? How do I extract the data from my systems? And how do I make sure that the executives and the engineers are using the same source of truth and using the same data to make these decisions? And this is kind of back to why I don't think Amazon's going to lose anything anytime soon. I think their company culture understands all of this, right? And I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm just saying they're so ahead of curve compared to most companies you walk into who are just like, wait, what? Like Charity said, companies are getting better. But even then, they're just getting better within the R&D unit. Even thinking about it throughout the rest of the business to them is still so far away. But like, I mean, I would get it going back to Robert. His wife at the time was one of Workiva's business analysts. And she'd keep coming to us. It's like, I need this. I need this. I need this. I'm like... I don't want to keep having to answer that question. I just want to give you the data so you can go do it. She she knew how to do everything. She didn't need me to build the actual like data dump. She knew how to traverse the data dump. She just needed access to the data dumps. Yeah. So it's like, then she could tie all that together. She could do projections based off history. She could actually project out and go, our Google costs. And back to the $15,000 thing, we had a different thing. where Once again, Google made it so easy. Like Rakiva's data was very seasonal. So they did uh, SEC filings come beginning of the year. All of a sudden our traffic went nuts. Yeah. So we would go in and we just start you know, tweaking the knobs to increase the system so it would scale better with it. But the, one of the problems we found is our CFO comes in and he goes, hey, our bill was 100K more than expected. Oof. What happened? And thank, thank God, like, at this point, we were pretty comfortable with this. And this is what I mentioned this in my talk too. We had to cut thinking like economists. We're going through this data trying to figure out why all of a sudden did our bill spike? We couldn't, like what shipped, all of this. And it was ended up being simple. One of our version of an ops person just went and turned the knob up to 11. He's like, we had customers, they were getting blocked in queues. I just cranked it up. He forgot to turn it back down. Oh. It was that simple. And, and that that's what I'm kind of getting. like, this is where we're headed. And the companies that are going to be good at this, yeah. they're going to beat you on margins every single day. Yep. They, they're just going to kill you. And that's what Amazon does to everybody. They beat you on margins. They are willing to take everything down to less than a penny because they know exactly what it costs them to do it. And most companies can't even get it down to like a thousand dollar margins. Like they're, they're just so lost. This is the other thing about services is that 
it is so much cheaper. Like this is the other reason that I feel like the serverless movement has been more successful than GCE, more successful than I expected, is because they're so fucking cheap and they can show it, right? They show all these presentations about, you know, here's how much it costs to run this app, you know, your hundreds of thousands of dollars. Here's how much it costs to do it on demand. It's like pennies. Yeah, it was funny when I started back at Workday, it was the first time that this happened to me in a decade. They go, hey, you're releasing a new service. I, I need some estimates so I can provision. And I'm like, oh God, I forgot how to do this. I'm used to having elastic services. And the advantage of that is I don't just have machines running, not doing anything, like wasting money. It's like our service is very on demand. It's pretty simple. It should only do what it needs to do. It doesn't need to sit there waiting for requests to come in, just wasting money. Once again, that's back to that mental shift of like, that's a cultural change for everybody to even think that. And that's, I like said, I think that's what you're running into. That's what Amazon and Google were yeah. asking us to help with when we were consulting. They're like, you need to go help them understand why this matters. And what we'd end up, we'd always come in because it was some VP of in R&D who's like, we need to cloud, right? Whatever that meant, we need to cloud. And then they talked to Amazon and Google. They're like, whoa, all right, cultural shift here. You should talk to these guys. We'd go in there and we wouldn't spend even half our time with that VP. We'd spend our time with the executive team because we're like, you need to understand what's happening here. Right. And this is a cultural shift for you. It's two different cultural shifts almost, right? Like you have the shift to cloud and then you have the shift to serverless and on-demand, right? Like those are almost two separate conceptions. In fact, we struggled with some of that because we had an accidental $10,000 Lambda, right? Like we set something running and we didn't realize how much it was going to cost and we didn't have alerts set up on that kind of dynamic spend. So many stories about that. Like we we have interns that would cost us 10 grand on a weekend because they'd start some service on Friday and forget to turn it down. And literally like to give Google credit, they would actually be watching our systems close enough. They'd be like, hey, so one of your non-production environments is like churning through compute. Right. Uh, are you sure you want that to happen? We're like, oh God, no, 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 <laughs> Go, please kill it, kill it. But yeah, that it wasn't that we accidentally ran out of memory. It's we accidentally spent thousands of dollars because the system would just do it for us, which was on one level brilliant. The cloud is infinite. I, I love that like we're starting to get to a place where it's it's no longer okay for engineers to just engineer and not have some awareness of what business you're in, what you're trying to do. And I feel like there's this at first it can feel like a drag, you know, or you know, those stodgy business people, but like it actually adds meaning to your life. I feel like it actually has the potential to make you so much more invested in what you're doing and care so much more. And like we care about autonomy and mastery and meaning, right? And what is business if not the meaning of what we're doing and why we're doing it? I agree. This is this is why I like product. I got into product because I like helping people. I like building things that people like to use and seeing that you know impact their day-to-day -day life because a lot of these folks are stuck in crap jobs using crappy software that some IT person shoved down their throat. It's like, no, I want to give them something they actually like so they don't hate their life. But also the engineers, when you see that, it's like, this is great. And I think especially the lower in the infrastructure stack you were, the less you saw that. Yes. This is, it's, it's a shock to me. Like it's a very novel revelation to me. So yeah, but it, at least for me, I'm not sure if everybody's this way. Once you've done it, you're like, oh, this is amazing. You can't go back. And this is my hope with like observability and serverless and everything. It's like, yes, it's a hurdle. No doubt. Anytime you're asking someone to change what they're doing with their tool, I feel like it has to be an order of magnitude better than what they've got in order for you to like look them in the eye and say, yes, this is worth it. Yes, you should try it. But once they've tried it, once they've seen it once, you can't go back. You cannot unsee. Oh, yeah. That was always my struggle, both consulting and even coming back to Workday, which is like they're just an older company. They're they're trying to get through this process too, right? Like they're in the same state. They just, they started sooner than Workiva did. So they started pre-cloud. And so they had the same things. It's hard for me. It's legitimately hard. I feel so constrained. It was just so weird because once you get into high level leadership and then I went back to doing like writing software and I was like, oh my God, this is so slow. Right. We have to have empathy. 
we have to have empathy for these people in order to actually be able to change their behavior. You just can't, you know, say, here are my stone tablets from the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, it was like, I used to view entire teams like functions of code because I'd be like, oh, they're going to go get me this thing. Like I was at a high enough level. That's just how I saw the world. Mm -hmm. So when I was down, I'm like, oh, I just want this service to exist. I'm like, oh shit, I actually have to go build this, which once again is why I love the cloud because I'm like, oh, I can just go turn it on. You mean I don't have to go install RabbitMQ? And by the way, installing is bad enough. Maintaining it's the nightmare that you don't oh, even... That, that's the other hard part about this is so much... Since we don't measure this stuff very well, once again, we measure the actual costs of running RabbitMQ. We never measure the cost of maintaining RabbitMQ. Yeah. So you don't even have a baseline to compare it to. That's the other difficulties when you're trying to sell this of like, oh, well, in this new system, we'll be able to measure. We used to hit this just literally on the management side with things like OKRs. Be like, hey, you should look at doing this to help you understand. And literally leaders would be like, yeah, but nobody else is doing it. And if I'm the only one who's measuring my work, I'm the only one who can be held accountable. And it's like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Right. But this is the thing where like engineering managers, you know, who are often, they're trying to make the case for like build versus buy or for buy instead of build. But because no one has ever asked them to see their job in monetary units before, they don't know where they're at, so they can't make an argument for why one is better than the other. And there's, this is a huge problem, and it's endemic in our industry right now. And like lots of people, they're sold, right? Let's say they're sold on observability or on buying a tool or whatever, but like they don't know how to craft the arguments because they haven't been expected to measure anything all along. Yeah, I'm actually very jealous of this presentation. It was at an Amazon reInvent. And generally, I find all of those types of conferences pretty pretty worthless. The hallway conversation is the only thing valuable. But there was a presentation. It was an actual Amazon engineer, not an AWS engineer. It was an Amazon product engineer. And he was given a presentation about a service he had to build. And he, he literally just walked you through his development process. And he literally pulled up the AWS cost calculator. He's like, this is how we work. He's like, here's the first architecture I thought I had. And then he plugs into the calculator. Oh my God, this doesn't cost us a million dollars a month. I can't possibly justify this. I'll never get this through. So he re-architects his system based off the cost, not based off literally anything else, just the cost of running that service. And by the time it's done, he's got it down to like very cheap. And one of the brilliant things that, that I learned that they, <laughs> this is the part I was like, I was so jealous of this. Once again, back to the margins part of it, they pass customer configuration data with every request so they can dynamically respond. So like, oh, you're actually abusing your quota. We're going to put you in the bad queue. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, that's brilliant. That's exactly how you do this. This is how it dynamically adjusts to your customers. And then me as a consumer, I, when I go flip the switch and say, give me more power, I don't have to go provision anything. It just happens. Mm. And it's like, oh, I'm jealous of people who did that. <laughs> like, I've had these interesting conversations with Amazon though. Amazon has been like reinforcing to us at least that they would rather have us do the right thing architecturally as long as it's sensible and not have to worry about the cost and they'll fix it up on their end rather than going into contortions to game the Amazon pricing. You know, That's kind of been one of our architectural struggles with our Kafka, with our ingest pipeline is that like Amazon data transfer fees are very expensive. And, you know, we don't want to have a outage because we've skimped on some level of reliability, but also the costs were just not sustainable for us. But I believe that's like a perspective thing. That's the AWS folks telling you that going how much they've probably been burnt by other people saying, oh, I did this as the cost cutting thing right there. They're, they're kind of like, oh, I don't want you to come back at me and be angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly it. So, you know, I'm glad they're so responsive to the feedback, but it's kind of this interesting, like going back to our earlier conversation about constraints, constraints can be helpful creatively, but they can also hurt you. So figuring out what's a good constraint and what's a bad constraint is really hard. 
Well, and this is like, I, I have so many engineers that report to me and they're like, I want to become an architect. I'm like, what is an architect? And when I think of like what an architect is, it's literally that it's the type of people who think about those type of things and make those kind of decisions. And over, you've just over time built up enough expertise that you start to have an intuition for those type of things where you're like, oh, this is a really poor design, even though it's a cost savings, I think I need to go. And then you need to go sell it, right? You need to go explain to somebody, this is why we need to make this more expensive decision. Like that takes experience and pain like you've been through and understand. That's what a senior engineer is, right? Like a senior engineer is capable of designing a system and defending the choices and explaining not just, you know, why this is technically pretty, but like, what is the problem being solved for the customer? Yeah. And back to Charity's point earlier, it's like, it's not just the product. Like I think over the last 20 years, our industry's done a much better job of catering to customer needs instead of just telling them what the hell to do. Like it's tragic what we did in the first, however many years of IT where it's like, no, you're going to use our crappy software. It's like, I will forever be grateful to the iPhone because I was in an enterprise industry when the iPhone came out and the C-levels were like, oh no, I want my iPhone. And the IT departments are like, no, you're going to use our Blackberries. And they're like, no, I'm the executive. You're going to support my iPhone. And then as soon as the iPhone started coming in, everybody's like, oh, this is good software. <laughs> and the entire enterprise world just started to change because all of a sudden people are like, I work with good software every day on my phone. Why am I using the worst possible software that has ever been created? And it's because it was created by people who never cared about the customers. They weren't empathetic to them. They just built the thing they thought they didn't even talk to them half the time, let alone observe them. So I think we've done better there. The next thing, the next step is like the cost side of it. Like it's not just about like building the best experience. It's understanding the cost. And as we're seeing with companies like Facebook and Twitter, externalities like there's stuff we have never like mm -hmm. there's no way zuckerberg or any of them thought they'd be in a world <laughs> where they're impacting literal global outcomes they're like wait i didn't sign up for this <laughs> yep accidentally created a genocide in myanmar oops yeah these are like it, this is the counter to andreessen's software is going to eat the world if we're going to be part of that industry we have to understand the responsibility of that and it's all of this right and we've just been slowly working up our chain finally we're not abusive to our customers at least in just the product experience but we might be abusive to them in other ways and we need to understand that. I'm not saying there's always good solutions to that. These are hard decisions. This is also why you're in leadership and get paid more to be that. Type the whole person. attention economy. Like, what do we do with that? You know, and I think that we all like had these, this ideal in our heads that if anyone was going to be making these decisions, it would be a democratic process. And instead, we've got these unelected corporations that are making these incredible decisions about the future of our species. And A, we didn't consent to that. B, they didn't either. Like, I don't think they ever wanted to sign up for that. And like, we've just ceded this space to them because they were there first. And I feel like we have to like rebuild and trust our trust in government so that we can like take that back somehow because now we're way above our pay grade, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I mean, this was kind of the point of my presentation. This is where I think this is all going. I mean, this is the point. If we can't even understand our own systems, how are we possibly going to be able to have these conversations? And this, th this is kind of what I mean. How can we even look ourselves uh, in the, yeah. Yeah, we're, ju we're just guessing. No different. Like I get like Facebook, Twitter, those companies are at such scale. It's easy for me to intuit why they are struggling. But every business has got to go through this and be able to explain these, yeah. these things. And like we are so integrated in life. <laughs> so what do you think is a reasonable percentage of your infrastructure budget to spend on observability? I don't know. So I'll tell you what we did at Workiva. So as I mentioned, Robert, he ended up becoming the VP of all infrastructure ops support everything. And he set a hard limit of our entire R&D spend for all of operations at 10%. Whoa. Because he went and he researched other companies like Google and all of them. He's like, they're at like 50-50 at best. 
And he's like, but we don't need to do that. We're on the cloud. Why should we need to do this? What? We don't need people stacking servers. We don't need these many people in ops. And we didn't. But what we did spend our money on was things like that. Literally observability. It's like, I don't need to spend, if I put the money into Honeycomb, I don't have to pay for somebody. And it's always more expensive to pay for the labor. So his view is like, I want software to solve my problems. So his view from the ops world is he's like, I want the majority of ops to be software. And that includes the observability. It's a challenge though, getting people to treat their ops budget as being the combination of SaaS and headcount, right? Most people see them as two different buckets and are like, oh, you know, I'll give you all the headcount you want, but you can't have money to spend on outside SaaS. Because the budgeting process it has in the completely different parts of the org. And- yeah. And th- there's a lot of factors. There's also like the control side of it. We're still not totally comfortable handing things over to software. <laughs> and like, we want there to be a person I can just go strangle. Even those things I talk talked about with the budgeting thing like it was always difficult for us to when they'd come and be like i need to know this specific thing it's like these are complicated systems there is no like yeah. i've heard your very complicated answer now just pull a number out of your ass what percentage <laughs> of the overall infrastructure budget would you say is reasonable it depends like are you including like all your system costs and all like yeah 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 like it should definitely like so if you were doing 10 percent, i think it should be at least in like that one percent range of that like it should be 10 percent of your operations costs in that realm to me because it's that is the tool i use for everything if you have good ops, that is at some level outside of the provisioning system. The only thing that you need. <laughs> I would almost counter and say you're starting with the wrong denominator, right? Like when you start at the percentage of your infrastructure budget, rather than saying that observability is a developer productivity expense. Yes. I, I think that that's kind of how we change the conversation is that it's not about like improving the cost of operations for your ops. It's about making your devs be able to go faster. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, obviously, what your guys' sales world is, but that is a tool for engineers, not a tool for ops. Ops, like, we had this struggle constantly, like, because they're like, no, you're going to use Splunk, because IT and ops people love Splunk. And we're just like, no. <laughs> and I feel very offended the way people talk about ops, because that's been not my experience of ops. Like, operations engineering is excellent in my in my world. But like, yes, this is a tool for people who write and ship code. And if you call that engineering, fine. Yeah, I should probably call this like enterprise ops, right? It's more the, the ops you would see in like the enterprise type companies versus you'd maybe see it like a Facebook. I get that. So I, I think that like what, what I was trying to like get at is that like, I feel like, you know, if you're spending $100,000 a year on your infrastructure, then like, I do think there's something proportional to that where you need to spend just an understanding that infrastructure. And I don't know that it scales with the team. I think that it probably scales with the complexity of the infrastructure itself because it, it shouldn't really matter if you have 10 people using it or like a thousand people using it, if they can understand this. But I feel like like 30% is a pretty reasonable expectation. Like it's going to cost between, you know, somewhere between like 20 and 30% of what you're spending infra just to understand what you're doing on the infra. Yeah, and this is probably where I was a little off on that because, like, when I'm saying ops, there, I really mean everything, not just writing software for the business. So I'm including like people owning CI/CD, any of that. And to me, you should be spending just as much on the observability as you are anything on CI/CD systems. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like people have overfocused, you know, oh, DevOps means CI/CD, and the answer is no, no, that is not all DevOps does. Yeah, and I like anybody who's been in this world knows you can't write enough tests to cover everything. You're always going to have this other stuff. And as our systems get more complex, actually, the testing becomes a little like it's still valuable at the lower level, but that's not where your hard problems are. You cover the basics so that you don't ship any dumb shit. And I think if you look at the door report, you know, the percentage of teams that are elite or whatever, right? You know, it was like 7% in 2018, it's like 20% in 2019. And like that bubble's getting bigger and going higher. And I feel like 
I don't have any data to support this, but like I feel like that bubble it consists of mostly of teams that are doubling down and shifting their center of gravity to production. You know, whether that's chaos engineering and observability and feature flags and progressive deployments and all of this energy that we've just been futzing around like in the pre-production environments and like people spend months you know you can have one environment per developer they do all this elaborate shit and then they have no cycles left over for like putting guardrails around production and i'm just like i'm not saying there's no value to staging there's some but invert your priorities please and i feel like the teams that have made that switch to production first they're so much more effective and they're so much more able to just like react quickly to identify what's going on to be really powerful like where it counts it's the mentality shift. It is 100% the mentality shift. It's easier to do a incremental change versus doing a dramatic change. And I think that's kind of the hill that we have to push the rock up. I'm not an incrementalist. I am a, I like, go to the end, motherfuckers, burn it down. And then, yeah, then Liz comes along after me and makes it actually work. So. Yeah, that's, I've, I've been burned enough times. Like, I, I, yeah, I want to be the aggressive type, but yeah, I've now, like, I'm much more politically savvy about it but yeah part of it is because i spent so much time with having the same argument and and the unfortunate one with that as i that argument was with devs like honestly like at work the leadership was like no that is where the problems are why like they were the ones pushing for chaos tools and this gets back to kind of the, the black box stuff of google we were so constrained we had no choice like <laughs> like at that point, I mean, Google, like App Engine, they mocked out for local environment. So it was nothing really. Like, it wasn't even multi-threaded, right? Like just completely not realistic. Yeah. The non-production environments, you would change the configuration so much. Once again, basically useless. And then like all of our problems happen in production in these certain environments. It's like, so why can't we be there? And then it's like, well, also we're building a SaaS product. If we're building a SaaS product, by default, we support isolated user behavior. Right. <laughs> so if we can't have like a our own Workiva dev version running in production along with everybody else, what the hell does that say about our system and what we are doing to our customers? It's back to, again, empathizing with our customers. If we don't even trust being able to run potentially risky code through our system, because your customers are putting risky stuff into your system every day, you have no clue what the hell they're doing. I mean, my God, the amazing things they will do. Customers are the original chaos monkeys, and they're so much better than anything you'll ever... (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, this is... (laughs) I mentioned my, I had an interaction with Ben Trainer. This actually gets to that because it was their version of us doing that to them. <laughs> <laughs> Where we, like this is, and this is why I got into observability. We were hitting them using their task queue system where they had pull queues, which we were basically treating kind of like Kafka. It was an abuse of the system. It was not meant to work this way, right. but we were on Google Lab and we had no Kafka available. We investigated running Kafka. Right. We weren't going to do it. Way too expensive. Didn't want to hire entire devs just to maintain Kafka. We're like, all right, but we want this kind of capability. So we kind of did, we hacked task queues to make this work where we would build our own kind of cleaner pull queue agent that we would insert with a task, basically runtime, abusing kind of the task naming system to do this. <laughs> and of course, right, like Google had its own PubSub system that they eventually released as Google Cloud PubSub, but it wasn't wired to Google App Engine at the time. So you were using a system designed for a completely different thing. Yep. And, th- and this is this is kind of the brilliant thing with it because I'm, I'm like doing this and we're debugging it and we're like, so what was happening is we were noticing that like our thing to pull data off, those tasks were not running right away. Like Google's like, if you put a task in, it'll run as soon as it can. And generally they're pretty good, right? And we could measure that out and say, usually within like a second or something. And depending on how you configure the queues, that would be faster or slower, right? And so we had a pretty good idea. But randomly, certain tasks, we're just seeing, we're taking forever. And time, right, we're just forever. (laughs) And then we actually start getting and looking at our measurements and the weirdest thing started happening. We go, all right, so if it doesn't happen within like a two second window, it's at 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. 
And if it wasn't within 60 seconds, it was 120 seconds. So I literally built a whole tool to prove this to Google and I sent it to their devs. I'm like, hey, my guess is you have some sort of background cleaner <laughs> system that has come through and looking for tasks that are stuck and reruns them. And I'm guessing that runs every 60 seconds. And that's basically what happened from the outside using like these tools and measurements. I guess their architecture from the outside. But the beauty is um, at one of these Google conferences with some other folks more Kiva and Ben Trainer walks up and he's, he goes, uh, oh, who are you all? And we say, and we go work at Kiva. He goes, oh, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, uh, we've been having some interactions with you. And I go, yep. Um, I go, I think I'm that person. <laughs> and we're kind of walking through it. And he goes, yeah, I tore into my team after that because he goes, he walked in there and he's like, why is this still a problem? And they're like, the devs basically said they're using our system wrong. And he goes, it's not your fucking job to tell your customers how to use your system. It is your job to support how your customers use your system. And like, I don't know, that could be hypocritical. I don't know. I was just like, he is correct. <laughs> like, yep. That is exactly the absolute mentality, right? Like your job is to make your customers happy. I remember being at Parse, you know, and being on the other side of one of these, right? Where we had engineers, we gave them SDKs, they could build mobile apps, and I would run all the databases on the other side of it, right? And they did the most horrendous things with queries. You know, they would construct these queries, they're just like doing a 5x full table scan just to like return a single row. They're just terrible. And I used to get super pissy at them, you know, just like, I hate our customers. And then I realized... They've got SDKs. Like It is in no way apparent to them what is happening in our API layer, in MongoDB. We don't feed any of this information back to them. They have no way of seeing it as doing anything but taking an unpredictably long time. Right. And like I feel like it's our job when we're when we're dealing with engineers as customers, especially, to yes, to support and empathize, but also to try and feed back enough information so that they can make good decisions, so that they can form a mental model of how the system works, so that they aren't just, like, it shouldn't be a black box. And I feel like I have often said that, like, the part of the world that is, like, on the cutting edge of how to instrument for observability is serverless, and I guess Google App Engine, because it's the idea that, yeah, you, you may not have any access to what's going on under the hood. You may not have any access to the system metrics. You don't give a fuck. All you care about is can your request execute from end to end? Can it get the resources that it needs? And if not, why not? That's all you need to know. And you should be able to tell all of that with the instrumentation that you can write for yourself. Yeah. I mean, we learned that even at Workiva ourselves because we built basically like an Excel-like product. And anytime, like that's an IDE. Excel is the largest IDE in the world, right? And we're building a tool like that. And we allowed them to do even more powerful stuff where they could create formulas that cross these. We'd end up with calculation change that were just millions of pieces of data. And the stuff our customers would do was astounding. They would use formulas to do language translations. Oh like, God. are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like, and, and the more they did that, the more they complicated our system, the more we would react to that. They'd overcomplicate. They just keep pushing us, right? And this is the world we're all in. This is literally how the world works, right? Like somebody pushes you, you build your system to allow a little more space. And then somebody new comes along and pushes it further. And this is what you're seeing on the cloud. Like each group is just pushing them further. There's an infamous talk made by my former boss, Dave Renson uh, of Google Customer Reliability Engineering. And he basically argues every product eventually becomes a self-contained API. If you make it available to customers, people will develop an API around it. People will use it for things you didn't anticipate. And like you need to be in dialogue with your customers or else your product is going to be a non-starter. The tools we built for ourselves to understand what our customers were doing to us, we had our own like customer conference with our customers. And we did like this nerdy thing. We didn't even think anybody would like it. We just had our backend engineers show up because we knew there were some customers who really got into it. They're like, oh, I do that to your system. Like, that's what it looks like. 
And we just set up a, a booth and we had all these charts and all like showing, and we built diagrams. They look like starburst diagrams of the complexity of their system. And they become assessed. They're like, can you build these tools in our product? Like, I want to know. And it's like, it was just like an engineer going like, yes, you're finally letting me see what's happening. Like, yeah, this is what we really love at Honeycomb about like sharing, about sharing our graphs with people, right? Like we're a very transparent company because we know people really value that transparency. And if we can help them get better performance, right? Like they're happy to change. They just need to know that they can get better performance if they just tweak one thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of unintuitive for engineers because I think we came from this mindset of like, we should fix everything for you. Right. And honestly, we can screw too many things up with that where we fix it in the wrong way, right? right? Where more ideally, it's like, do as much as you can, but give them the tools to fix it up themselves, right? Let them yeah. have some autonomy. Yeah. Well, we're like probably over time here. We might have to snip some of this out, but I was hoping that like, the last question on our list, like how observability is eating into the corporation and shouldn't stop in your software. Maybe you can just give us like a minute or two, like talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier of as much as software starts to eat in to the rest of the world in our enterprise, observability has got to come with that because we need to understand it. Like to me, observability is just a way of saying understanding our systems. Mm. So the more it eats in to the rest of the enterprise, the observability by default, it's going to have, something's going to have to come with it because the, this, all of this is becoming too complex. And part of this for me was at the same time, I'm working on these systems at Workiva, we're growing as a company. I'm moving up. I'm having to like build out org charts, manage it. I'm like, all of this is connected. It, everything is connected. And I have no way. I remember bosses come in and be like, hey, can you give me an architecture diagram? I'm like, well, it changes every day. We're shipping literally every day. We're changing it. It needs to be dynamic. It's another system that is just visualizing things. Yeah. Anything you put on paper is going to be stale three hours from now, three days from now, three years from now. Well, yeah. And even the business itself is changing that dynamically. Teams are changing that fast. Like by the time you get an org chart there, somebody's moving across to another team. It's like these same types of systems are going to be more and more common. Everything live, real time. And that's what helps you win. Yeah. The hard part is like, I think maybe from your guys' perspective is like, how generic do you go versus how specific, right? And that's kind of back to what you're saying at the very beginning. Oh boy. All right. We're <laughs> going to have to like put that off to the next podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Bo. This was super fun to have you. Nice to talk. Yeah, of course. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.